Welcome to the Wildscast. Our guest is David Jablinowicz. He is one of Israel's most celebrated radio personalities, who's interviewed almost every modern Israeli prime minister and President Barack Obama, among many others. He's a really interesting guy, and Rabbi Wilds and he had a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Okay, we are live. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the Wildscast, the MGE's podcast. I am very, very excited about my guest uh, this afternoon, uh, broadcast journalist and public speaker David Jablinowitz. I hope I... Uh, excellent. I excellent. Okay, okay, good. So for those of you unfamiliar with David, uh, he made Aliyah from New York to Jerusalem many years ago and has interviewed some of the most fascinating personalities, including U.S. President Barack Obama and no less than seven Israeli prime ministers. Uh, David studied at Queens College. Um, You just met my brother. He studied there as well. And he made Aliyah back in 1981 from New York, uh, where he grew up. Never imagined that he would one day become a top broadcaster for Israel's radio English news. Uh, David's always had a love for journalism. In high school, he worked on the school newspaper. College, he broadcasted a news program. So when he met Aliyah, he knew that this was something he wanted to do and has worked for now 30 years reporting in and on Israel. 25 of those 30 years as a diplomatic and political correspondent at Israel Radio. He has brief missions visiting Israel from North America. He's traveled here to the United States on speaking tours. And most importantly, he is married to Shari uh, and has four children and two grandchildren. Welcome, David. Thank you. Thank you very much. A news breaking news update. Actually, a few months ago, we had our third grandchild. So ah, okay. You, I'm, I hope you do a segment on that. That's great. <laughs> the most important part of my life, obviously. It's, there's nothing like nachas. Not, no. not even interviewing presidents and prime ministers can compare with Absolutely grandchildren. Absolutely not. Actually, I will take you back all the way to, I guess, the 1990s when I was in the stage of having children, small children at that point. And I was already starting to interview Israeli prime ministers. And I would tell people that I loved the feeling of in the morning, let's say, after Knesset, interviewing an Israeli prime minister. And then at mid-afternoon, when the kids would come home from kindergarten, preschool, or perhaps grade school a little bit later on, I would be able to get down on the floor with them and play with them. The contrast of my day, my average day, prime minister in the morning and the kids in the afternoon, to which a bureau chief, one of the news agencies, said to me afterward, when he heard about that thrill that I had, he said, you probably got more sense out of your kids than you did. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Well, I'm sure it keeps you humble, you know? Very much so. Very much so. so tell us a little, um, tell us who did, who have you interviewed in, in, the, in terms of Israeli, we'll move on to presidents after, but you're coming to us live from Israel. So tell us the names of the Israeli prime ministers you've interviewed and whether, if it's okay, if I ask this, that you, have, if you have a favorite. So, if any of those prime ministers are listening, I know that, well, some of them are gone. Most of them, in fact, they might be gone. But we have a few who are still with us until 120. But so if they're listening, I don't want them to hear who I prefer. But, and of course, we have a new one as of just, you know, within the last couple of weeks, who I've interviewed before, before he became prime minister, not mm-hmm. Tully Bennett, of course, we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I, I've interviewed every prime minister from Yitzhak Shamir. Shamir was prime minister through 1992 when Yitzhak Rabin took over, and that was the point I was getting involved in the news reporting, when Shamir was still prime minister. And I've interviewed every single prime minister since then, Shamir, Rabin, Peres, Netanyahu the first time around, of course, 
Ehud Barak, Ariel Sharon, Ehud Olmert. So I've interviewed all of them. It comes to seven altogether. You can do the math if I've skipped anybody. And in terms of a favorite one, that is truly a difficult question to answer. I will tell you that the man who was prime minister of the longest, Benjamin Netanyahu, was certainly a very entertaining interview. When I say entertaining, what I mean is when you're in the radio business, you want good radio, okay? And he was always good radio. I'm not the type of interviewer who wants to defeat my interviewee. I like good radio. I like the exchange. And I never minded when if I asked him a question, he retorted quickly. He had that quick quip afterward because that made for good radio. And he was certainly the best at it, if for no other reason than, of course, his English was the best of all the other prime ministers, although a good Olmert, for example, and some of the others also had quite good English. I would say the best radio, let's put it that way, best radio was clearly has been Netanyahu. Wow. And and when you interview, you just mentioned something. I mean, you're not out to sort of get, you know, the people you're interviewing, even if there are, you know, controversial issues that they're involved with. Um, tell us a little about that. Is that, are, are you trying to, do you probe do you, um, you know, try to, you know, expose their weaknesses or their corruption if there is any? Um, is that the, you know, or is it really just to have a real conversation with them? A real conversation. One time, a sound engineer who would do some of the broadcasts or recordings with me, out of nowhere, one of the many times we did an interview together, when I finished, he said to me, you know what? You actually let people finish their answers okay because it's very common here in israel and in the united states i'm sure to just kind of cut people off right in the middle and and the question i've always had in my mind has been who is the center of attention here okay my job as a reporter is to get the information out i'm a dinosaur i still believe in if you remember this term objective journalism okay And so my feeling was, let that person say what he or she has to say, wants to say. And then, you know what? Objective journalism. Get the other side. That doesn't mean that you don't play devil's advocate. Of course you do. You don't just lie down and let the person say whatever they want to say, especially if they're not answering your question. Yeah. In which case, I would direct them toward what I actually asked them and not, you know, what they want to say diplomatically without actually answering what I been asking them, in other words, difficult questions, but they, and they just didn't want to answer it. So then I would direct them. Otherwise, let them talk. Let them have their say. Otherwise, how are people going to know? And, and when, when you felt, let's say, a prime minister or even a president was being evasive because they just simply did not want to answer, and you know, a good politician knows how to somehow very quickly move away from the reporter's question, what, what do you do? You steer them back. I mean, the truth of the matter is, I think the best example I have of that, and again, this is why, I don't know, maybe it's on your list already of questions you want to ask later on, but I'll answer it now. What is the beauty of radio? For example, I'm working now with the Jerusalem Post, and it's wonderful working there, but there is something, there's a magic about the broadcast media, including podcasts, which is the new, not so new anymore thing, right? But the reason why there is this magic of what you and I are doing now, for example, is that if I don't answer your question, you're going to pounce on me or whatever you do, okay? If someone does that in a print interview, you don't capture what's going on. And I think the best example is not actually with a prime minister, although I've had a few of those as well, but with a Knesset member by the name of Ahmed Tibi. 
He is an Israeli Arab Knesset member. And for those of you viewers who don't know of him, he's a longtime Knesset member. He's also been an advisor to the Palestinian leadership over the time. He's had a bit of a, a mixed history. And one time, when one of the many times when the Temple Mount was in the news, it's always in the news, right? We just had the war in Gaza where the Temple Mount was was put at the center of the dispute yet again, among other issues, last month in May when the war broke out. And one of the many times, many years ago, I had Ahmed Tibi on the air and I asked him the following. I said, you know what? In Islam, we'll accept that your mosque over there, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, is the third holiest shrine to Islam. Will you accept the fact, can you just accept the fact that the Temple Mount is the holiest shrine to the Jews? Because, you know, there's been, as I'm sure you know, Rabbi Wilds, and I'm sure many of your viewers do, the question as to whether whether people, Jews or others, should be allowed to go up to the Temple Mount, in other words, non-Muslims, in addition to Muslims who do pray there at the Al-Aqsa Mosque on a regular basis, what about the Jews to their holiest shrine? And I asked that question of Knesset member Ahmed Tibi, and he answered by saying, it is a holy Islamic shrine. I said, we're accepting that, okay? Tell me, do you accept that it's the holiest shrine to the Jews? I would have to say, tell you that I must have done this three times, four times, five mm -hmm. times. I think anyone listening to that radio broadcast got the message. Right. Like right. Trying to say. Right, That's the part you try to do if someone doesn't answer your question. You just keep on pouncing. You can't necessarily force them, but the listener or the viewer gets the idea of what's going on. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Um, tell us a little about um, presidents and U.S. presidents. And I'm also curious uh, when how you prep for these kinds of interviews with a prime minister or a president. But let's hear a little about the American presidents that you've interviewed, who have they been? So it's really been, the only real interviews I've had have been with Barack Obama, mm -hmm. when he was still president. And what happened there was, it was clear from the get-go that Mr. Netanyahu, who returned to the prime minister's office in 2009, he was 96 to 99, as you know, for a few yep. years, and he returned in 2009, the same year, just a, about a couple of months, a few months off actually, from when Barack Obama became president on January 20th, 2009, of course. So it was clear from the get-go, as soon as Mr. Netanyahu became prime minister, this was not going to be easy in terms of U.S.-Israel relations and specifically at the very top in the relationship between the prime minister and the president of the United States. So someone from the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations contacted me, someone who had known me for many years already, from where you are in New York. And he said to me, I think we could use a friendly voice inside the White House. So he established a contact between me and a senior aide. I'm one day, okay, at the age of 100, maybe. I'm not supposed to really say who the names of all these people are. Mm -hmm. But basically, I was made aware and the contact was established with a senior aide in the Bar Barack Obama White House. And he and I started to talk, this aide, not the president yet, the aide and I were talking on a constant basis. It became a friendly relationship. This is what the person from the Conference of Presidents of American Jewish Organizations wanted to do. He didn't want us to be talking about some Iran deal or the Palestinians. He wanted me and this aide in the White House 
to talk about life, life in the White House, life in Israel. And we would exchange views. We became very friendly with one another. And this way, we established a very, very good relationship. But I can tell you, I'm looking for all these especially Jewish-related kind of stories. A very funny story that happened once. One of the many times that the Obama White House had to do damage control with Israel and therefore with various U.S. Jewish organizations happened to be on the second day of Shavuos, Shavuot, right? The holiday of Shavuot. Now, many you certainly know, many of your viewers maybe all know that for ancient customary reasons, there is only one day in Israel and two days of Shavuot and various other holidays elsewhere in the world, around the world, in the Jewish communities. So on the second day of Shavuot, when in Israel I am answering the phone, okay, I'm an Orthodox Jew, but we don't observe the second day. So anyway, this aide from the Obama White House calls me and says to me, David, can you please tell me, I'm trying to get in touch with all the U.S. Jewish organizations and no one is answering the phone. Why is anyone <laughs> answering the phone? That's great. And I said to him, don't you have somebody in the office there who can tell you that today is a Jewish holiday and therefore people will not be answering the phones? To which he retorted, so why are you answering the phone? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this try is to, try to... I established with him over the course of those basically just about almost eight years. Then at the, toward the very end of the second term of President Obama, the aide said to me, you mentioned earlier, Rabbi Wilds, my tours to the United States. He said, are you coming anytime soon to the United States? And unfortunately, there weren't that many months left until the end of the president's term, second term. So I said, no, I'm not coming. So he, he couldn't guarantee a meeting with the president. Had he been able to guarantee it, I would have made the trip just for that. But he couldn't guarantee a trip. He said, I could get you inside the White House. And perhaps if the president is around and available, I could get you to sit down with him. But for that, I couldn't leave work. I couldn't leave what I have here. So right. not. But then a little bit later on, he says to me, what about a five-minute phone call with the president, with President Obama? To which I said, um, okay. <laughs> you know, and we, we had that phone call. It was October of 2016. We had a subsequent phone call in December of 2016 when when Hillary Clinton had already lost the election, but of course President Obama was still in the White House. And I'll just tell you very quickly, the major point that came out of my conversation with him in October of 2016 was a very difficult day to have the conversation. It was on, on a Friday in between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. So it's a crazy time, of course, but for the President of the United States, obviously I freed myself up and we did this phone conversation. Now, everybody who follows Israel and President Obama, foreign affairs, et cetera, knows that at the very end of his term, I believe toward the end of December, just a few weeks before he left the White House, a UN Security Council resolution proclaiming classifying Israeli settlements as illegal passed in the UN Security Council. And the reason that that resolution passed was that unlike almost, not always, but almost every other time previously, a U.S. administration did not veto the resolution. And therefore, without the American veto, this, this resolution passed. But there was something else that the president told me in October of 2016, which I was not able to disclose until he left office. That was the deal that the White House made with me. So in other words, until after January 20th. But I had my say, speaking of having a devil's advocate approach to an interview, he said to me that he wanted to bring forward an American sponsored. The one, the other one I'm talking about was not sponsored by the United States, but an American sponsored resolution 
to be brought to the UN Security Council, which would set the parameters and the time frame for reaching an Israeli-Palestinian what's called final status agreement. Mm-hmm. The parameters of 67, the 1967 lines and, and within a year and a half or two years to complete that negotiation process. And he made it clear to me that he wanted to end his two terms with a legacy that he was a friend of Israel. His differences were perhaps with Benjamin Netanyahu, but not with the people of Israel. To which I said to President Obama, and this interview was not played for airing, only became public afterward. I said to him, I have a sneaking suspicion that if you were to ask left-wing parties, the more, if you will, peace parties, liberal parties, if they would support such a resolution, 67 boundaries, Jerusalem, part of Jerusalem as a Palestinian capital, all the things that have been discussed already, these left-wing parties, I don't think they would want it at a UN Security Council resolution that that should be how this is determined. They want Netanyahu out of office. They want a center-left prime minister. They want to negotiate many of the same things that you're talking about, but they want Israelis to do it because Israelis want to do it. They don't want an international dictate from the Security Council. And at my recommendation, he went, or he had his people at the U.S. Embassy here in Israel, go to these very good, go to all the parties, with the exception of perhaps of the Ahmad TV type of Knesset members, okay, but mm-hmm. otherwise Zionists, let's call them Knesset members, virtually the entire Knesset, and every single party from right all the way to the left, for our viewers who are familiar, the Labour Party, Merits, whatever these parties who are on the left, peace parties, the peace camp as they call themselves, all objected to such a resolution wow. for the reason that they wanted this negotiated directly. And directly, as was right. I'm told by that same Obama aide, President Obama dropped the idea of that resolution. Wow. So that's a great example of how a journalist can do even more than probe and ask questions. That's incredible. What um, did you did you get to talk to him about the Iran deal? I had contacts with the White House, not with President Obama. Yeah, we, I mean, we talked about Iran, but it was a done deal by that point. It right. Was reached in 2015. We right. did talk about it, but I did have real time contacts which were rather hot under the collar, actually, in July of 2015, I believe it was, when it was all reaching ahead and the agreement was reached. And it was a, it was a very difficult time, nothing that little me could do about it, but I, but I had my say based on, again, my job as a reporter has always, of course, I'm pro-Israel, okay? There are too many people out there, I'm sure you're well aware, who they may call themselves anti-Netanyahu, and now perhaps they have a bit of a test with Netanyahu out of office to see what their real stripes are. There are people who say they're anti-Netanyahu, when in fact some of these people, as you know, are really anti-Israel altogether. And so I wanted to just make clear that I am pro-Israel, the existence of Israel. There are different views within Israel, but within Israel, the, the, the various views about the Iran deal, I made sure in case anyone didn't know that these were the particular views and how serious it was viewed in Israel. And that point I got across, but I can't see I changed much in terms of the Iran deal so far. <laughs> well, I mean, we still have, to, you know, they're trying to propose it again. But I mean, do you struggle to keep your own politics out of your interviewing? You know, you're, you're trying to sort of remain objective. On the other hand, you're this, you know, um, you made Aliyah, you're an Orthodox Jew, you clearly love and support the state of Israel. But I mean, can you just tell the people you're interviewing, whether it's Barack Obama or whether it's anyone else, this is where I'm at. How do you answer this? Or does that get you into being 
you know, taking away from being an objective reporter like you talked about before? I think aside from just being pro-Israel, but at the same time recognizing the vibrancy of the Israeli democracy, the resilience of the Israeli democracy and the Israeli people, from there, it's totally objective. I accept the fact that there's left and there's right and there's center. There are differing views as to resolve how to resolve the Palestinian issue, how to resolve economic issues. Oh, we have all sorts of issues in Israel. It's not just the diplomatic stuff of Palestinians and Iran, of course. And I've got to tell you that I've had people who have heard the interviews that I've done, and they say to me, don't you feel like your stomach churning inside because you're not giving away what you really feel? And I, and I, I tell people, I don't know what it is about, <laughs> analyze my, do some self-analysis here. I don't know what it is about myself. I don't know if it's this open-mindedness that I have that has allowed me to be a journalist, or it's all these years as a journalist that just makes me, accepting the diversity of people. If someone's out to destroy me, there's nothing to talk about. But within right. the realm of the state of Israel, I'm, I'm very open-minded. And I've talked to, as, as we've even referred to, you know, even in Israel, political officials, Knesset members, prime minister, whomever, who have been from left to right pretty much across the spectrum, even someone who won't recognize the Temple Mount as the holiest shrine to the Jewish people. Well, I mean, I this is I want to stay on this for a minute, uh, David, because I, I actually just came out with a new book. It's called The 40-Day Challenge, and it's got 40 different Torah messages and lessons to be read from Rosh Chodesh Elul all the way to Yom Kippur. And one of the messages, I called it, Keep Your Eye on the Ball, Not the Person. When I, what I mean by that is when I used to play basketball, my coach said to me, follow the ball, not the person. And I find that that's a big issue that a lot of my students, MGE is comprised primarily of 20s and 30s, a lot of millennials, that we, we, we've lost the ability to have a conversation, a rational discussion slash debate with someone we vehemently disagree with. And we're, we're, we're slinging mud and we're attributing ill will to their perspective, as opposed to hearing it out and arguing vehemently against it. You know, how do you feel about that? Do you think that's what's happened in the world of journalism today? Because I'm seeing that on the street. I'm seeing a lot of my students defriending themselves on Facebook, uh, canceling certain personalities because they don't subscribe to a certain, uh, you know, a perspective, as opposed to staying friends, staying colleagues, but disagreeing. So first of all, absolutely about journalism. It has become a very difficult playing field, okay? People do not know how to talk. They do not know how to talk with one another. <clears throat> Excuse me. They do not know how to talk with one another. They do not know how to give both sides of the opinion. I watch a lot of American news as well as Israeli news. And to see one network give more Republicans, almost totally Republicans, and the other network all Democrats, it's a very difficult situation for me as a journalist. That's not what I was taught. And it's not easy to hear on the other end someone expressing a point of view which is totally against what I really feel and runs against the core of what I feel. But that is the sense of debate that people are supposed to have with one another. And you don't, you just don't don't have it all that much. And I try, and I know others, there are other journalists who do it, not just me to maintain that and to have fair dialogue and discuss it so people can better understand what the lessons are, what the views are. Instead of the rhetoric, 
which don't get the points. They don't get your own points across. What's the point of that? Yeah. So, what would you tell our viewers? Because I'm I'm seeing it on a very grassroots level. I'm seeing um, conservative Republicans, liberals, um, conserv- I mean, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, just staying away from each other. Uh, defriending each other, not going out on dates. I mean, we're tiny people, and we can't seem to learn how to debate the issue. And I've said this so many times, but you know, you've studied Talmud. You know that the Talmud is filled with machloket, the shame shemaim, debates for the sake of heaven. And my favorite example is Hillel and Shammai, because whenever the Talmud uh, records a debate between Hillel and Shammai, they always call it the school of Hillel, Beit Shammai, the school of Shammai, because Shammai and Hillel were friends. Their children married amongst each other, each other's children. And how do you get to the truth? How do you, how do you, if you don't have these two perspectives hitting up against each other, that's how the Gemara does it. Um, and I'm just wondering what we can do, because it's not just happening in journalism, it's happening, you know, at the, you know, on the conversational level. Um, and pretty soon, you know, we, we had a lot. We had a migration of people who left New York during COVID, went to Florida, didn't like, and I understand, didn't like the way um, things were played out. And I, I also was upset about certain uh, policy decisions that were made. But the, the, it just seems like the days are gone where we can just literally be friends and colleagues and respect people with whom we vehemently disagree. Well, what would you suggest? Is there any, any way of sort of bringing that back? So I would say, first of all, I mean, I don't know how to bring out, you know, per se, but I can tell you that we have to get to a point where people can have, as you say, I mean, have conversations, disagree with one another, not hate each other afterwards, <laughs> live together and be able to have the kinds of conversations that get us to the point that we understand that there's my way and there's your way, okay? One time, more than one time, actually, on one of my speaking tours in the United States, I was talking about portraying a dispute or a number of disputes that were going on in Israel regarding various issues. And I've had more than once a person come up to me at the end of the discussion and say to me, You've totally confused me. I, I don't understand what you're trying to say. And I said, what's the, asked, what's the problem? He said, you said A and you said B. Which one is it? And that's the problem in the world in which we live today. People can't accept that, let's say, if we're talking about the Palestinian issue or other issues within Israel or within the United States, the various issues that are going on, okay, which you know better than I do, even if I am still an American citizen. But the point is that... Why can't people understand that there's a legitimate argument here? It really bothers me when people, for example, here in Israel, some people who are on the right wing, it happens both ways, but I think I hear it more on the right, the more conservative camp here in Israel, who will say, oh, no, no, this person is pro-Israel. And what they mean to say is he's right wing, he's conservative. And I, I feel myself going out of my way, whether or not I agree with those other policies or not, to say, no, no, a left-wing person, you may think he's misguided, he doesn't have his facts, what is he thinking? Say what you want. He is a Zionist, he is pro-Israel, he has just have he just has different ways of looking at things. Now, I actually think, you know, you can't shoot at the very thing which provides your own nourishment, okay? But so social media 
as with many other people, have helped me, okay? I didn't have anywhere near the amount of exposure, believe it or not, from all the radio work I did since the 1980s, as much as I've had over the last several years when I put myself on Facebook and various other platforms, okay? So I don't want to, you know, shoot, as I say, or act against or speak against something which has helped me tremendously. But it's very difficult. You know, being a journalist is even worse than being a rabbi, if you can believe that, okay? (laughs) I mean, everybody thinks you're the worst. Everybody thinks you're to blame. For well, I think I think it's harder for you, David, because rabbis are told to stay away from politics and uh-huh. you know from the pulpit at least, which is very difficult. And I've I've done that. Um, I, I'm proud of that because uh, you know I have a lot of diversity in my community. How do you, you can't stay away from politics? How are you supposed right. to run a radio show without discussing politics? But the thing is, so people have often said to me and to others, the old joke in our business, but it's not a joke, is that if you've been criticized, perhaps even condemned by both the left and the right, you know you're doing your job. Right. Okay. Right. And that's really what we've had to do over time. But why do I mention social media? Because I'm sorry to say this, but what it has also done is allowed every Tom, Dick, and Harry to become yeah. a journalist. Right. Okay. And right. instantaneously say things. Okay. I can tell you, and this is maybe not the best example, but just to show you what restraint with all of the criticism that we journalists get that, you know, we cause so much trouble in the world, whatever, which many of us, like in any profession, there are going to be those who are not good and are causing damage and they should be out. No question about it. There was an early morning radio show many years ago. I had to do so many years ago that, in fact, Israel was still in the southern Lebanon security zone. We were left there in May, just over 20 years ago, 21 years ago, actually, May 2000. And when Israel was still in the southern Lebanon security zone, one day I came in bleary-eyed at like 4.30 in the morning to do a 7 o'clock in the morning newscast, prepare the show. And I see on my screen a story from the Associated Press News Agency in Lebanon saying that 13 Israeli soldiers had been killed in some sort of military activity in southern Lebanon. That information came out of Lebanon. In terms of broadcasting from Israel, it was censored. The reason things are censored in Israel in situations like that are either because it could endanger Mm-hmm. military forces who are out there because the operation, some sort of activity is still going on, or because of soldiers have been killed, we want to, to the extent possible, inform the next of kin first before the rest of the world finds out. Israel is a very open society, but we do have military censorship in cases like that. Sure. That was at 4.35 in the morning. I gave a show at 7 o'clock in the morning. The entire show at 7 o'clock in the morning I dealt with all sorts of issues, maybe even issues relating to Lebanon, but I could not give that very important tidbit of information. I just couldn't say it. There are rules in Germany. Well, so it shows. I mean, if you don't mind me jumping in, it shows that you feel bound by some kind of constraints. Right. Well, first of all, I could get into real trouble if I had broken censorship number I don't, one. I'm, right. But, no, aside, I, but aside from that, you're right. I mean, I feel, and I think the can't speak for all journalists, but any journalist, just about every journalist I know, has felt a tremendous burden, a tremendous sense of responsibility on his or her shoulders, sometimes before I go on the air, and just to determine what are the headline stories in that newscast. You know how much power that is to make something the number one headline and how you phrase that headline? There is so much power there. And with all of the criticism of journalists and journalism, 
I know I was extremely careful about it, and I know my colleagues were careful about it. Nowadays, in social media, there are no rules. There are no rules. And, and, and that you're saying also, basically, everyone is a journalist now, because if you have a few hundred followers and you get you post something, and no one's fact-checking, so you can just post whatever you want, it somehow has inherent credibility. It doesn't have real credibility. I'm using the word inherent in a sense that I don't know why people just assume when they read something. So what do you tell people? How do you know? How do we let people know that not everything they're reading on the internet or on people's Facebook posts or Instagram, Twitter accounts may not be true? You have to know. You have to know the source. Now, it's impossible to go to the utter core and know everything about everybody from whom you hear the news. Now, I know there's criticism of the existing establishments, whether it be the New York Times or we have right. in Israel, too, people who criticize. But what I have always felt is with newspapers, if they, even if they have a certain ideology, because through the ages, through the decades more, <laughs> newspapers have had editorials. They've right. told you what they think. Right. Okay. So you can take it with a grain of salt, if you will. But there are exceptions, and you have to complain when you see those exceptions, in my mind. So, so, but, but how do people justify, how does the New York Times or some other publication justify putting across something as news when it's clearly opinion? How does that get, how did that become so acceptable? I mean, usually so again, I, I, the, yeah, I, I don't work in the New York Times, but I can tell you, let's say, where, where I come from. In other words, in terms of where I've worked, okay? So both in print and in broadcast journalism, there is supposed to be, there has to be a clear divide. There is room for both. You know, somebody at a place where I tried to work for a little while, I don't know, I was trying to reform a particular organization, I don't know, whatever, told me that that news outlet, I'm obviously not going to mention the name, it's an Israeli news outlet, in English though, he told me that his news outlet goes by the guidelines of advocacy journalism. I've got to tell you, Rabbi Wilds, I was at the top of a stairwell. I almost fell down the steps when he right. told me. Advocacy. Okay? Because that's what's, that, that is becoming more and more. I'm saying the whole popular. paper is opinion. It's, a, it's one big opinion. Right. So the thing is, like, right, so that, that's the thing. The, those people who write those articles, anybody who inserts their opinion into the, into the news articles is violating the rules of journalism. Now, it can be very subtle. It can be whether you put a particular aspect of the story in the first paragraph or the second paragraph, what you make the headline, okay? It's, I, I don't really have, listen to my radio station, so to my news no, seriously, I don't have a, a rule of thumb because basically there is supposed to be a clear dividing line. If you listen to public radio where I worked for many years, I worked in English, but of course Hebrew is the main language here, you will see that there are shows which are news shows. And then there are programs where you have a right-winger and a left-winger together, and you know, you know with what you're dealing. And those people are entitled to have those points of view because the show is known as such. If anyone ever violates those rules, as far as I'm concerned, he should be warned, you know, not the first time to be thrown out, but after a warning, you cannot hold on to that position. I think what's happening right now is, first of all, before social media, it was already a problem in journalism. But I think what's happened now between social media and the 24-hour cable news service and having, which I love, by the way, but having to always come forward with the story to be better and first and at any time of the day and constant 
is I know it myself, I felt it a few times myself, that you feel tremendous pressure to have more than the person in the next room, in the next network, the other newspaper. And that is a, a real problem. What what I, you know what I to, to sum things up, you know what I would recommend? To to stay away, first of all, from things which are clearly just social media, people speaking. Yeah, I don't think you have to be a journalist some in some cases, the most obvious cases, to realize that people are just spewing forth and are not basing it. What what are their sources? Check what their sources are. They're just spewing forth. And then with the others who feel to you as though they are relatively okay, although you can't swear by their total authenticity, read a bunch of them, listen to a bunch of them, get a synopsis of the differing views that you get from a bunch of different news sources, whether it be print or whether it be broadcast journalism, and I think you'll get a pretty good idea. Wow, thank you, thank you. Uh, Tell us how your Jewish roots shaped your desire to go into radio, but not only, uh, and, and let's stay on this a little because seems like you feel i don't want to say constrained but you you feel a moral compunction to um to act within the bounds of some kind of ethical standards tell us is is that come from your religious observance do you think that um if if other people were i guess more inspired by some sort of ethical um uh system whether it's a religious system or otherwise there would be more integrity to uh reporting today how, how has your Torah observance and Judaism influenced you in this regard? I think that I've had my cake and eat it too. I consider myself to be a very lucky person, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you this one reason why. And that is, I grew up in the United States with American values. I went to a yeshiva elementary school, a yeshiva high school, then I went to Queens College, as you mentioned earlier. And I actually, as a very small child, first got hooked on the Watergate hearings. So that was the thing that struck me, okay? How this was an historic event, and I felt glued to what was going on. So I felt myself growing up. You mentioned this, I believe, also. Already in high school, I was writing in a newspaper. I was on a, in Queens College. I was in a closed-circuit news television service that they provided, and that I worked in a Jewish newspaper in Queens College very heavily. That was the way I got to know a little bit about Israeli news, although there's nothing like coming to Israel and living it for yourself. So on the one hand, I I had those hardcore democratic values, the right of the people to know I wanted to be at the center of it, to the extent, by the way, that my high school, which was Yeshiva University High School of Brooklyn, known in those days as BTA, and which no longer exists, right, was in a building that was right around the corner from a high school that was set up that was named Edward R. Morrow High School. And as soon as I learned about Edward R. Morrow, who he was, that really got me into journalism. I learned about him from what he did during World War II and McCarthyism and all, you know, all that he did. I really, from growing up in the United States, I really had that hardcore perspective on life that, that this is what I want to do. I mean, that's what I want to do. And then right out of college, I came to Israel and was thrown right into the water. I did know, you know, basics. I knew Menachem Begin was prime minister at the time. I knew certain basics, but to think I would know about all of modern Jewish history, again, we learned about, you know, the Bible, Tanakh, whatever, growing up, I didn't learn so much about Jabotinsky and Ben-Gurion and all those other people, okay? Now I was having a crash course and in real time reporting from the Knesset and places like that. 
Wow. So what I would say is as follows. In terms of the values of journalism, I think it was embedded in me, in me already in the United States. Once I came to Israel, I realized that I was living Jewish history, Israeli history, the modern history. We went all of a sudden from the Torah that I had learned to the fact knowing that it didn't end there, we're continuing to live the dream in the state of Israel. And that has made me obsessed with the fact that we have to tell the story of what is going on in Israel. And for me, we once back in the 1980s, because in public radio, we had all sorts of languages, including Russian, people who came from the Soviet Union at the time. And those people felt we had to give a rosy colored picture of what was going on about life in Israel, we were on shortwave radio in those days before going to internet, which of course we've been doing for many years now. But And he wanted the world, this person from the Soviet Union who had immigrated to Israel, he wanted the world to know the beautiful side of Israel. And I said, I do too. But I want people to know the whole Israel. The whole picture. With my American background, together with my love for Israel, that I think has established who I am in terms of my love for the state. No one's going to destroy it. That's out of bounds, as we discussed earlier. Right. But in terms of the beauty of the Jewish people returning to the Jewish homeland and this beauty of differing people, the kibbutz galio, the ingathering of the exiles, different backgrounds, different opinions, as far as I'm concerned, you cannot block that out. We have to have our points of view brought together, but in a respectful way, what we were talking also about before, doing it in a way where we understand the other person. We can understand the other person is wrong. It's often been said that we feel that person is wrong. We, 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 you know, it's often been said that unity doesn't mean agreeing. Of course not. Unity does not mean agreeing one with the other. It means mutual respect, unity in the sense we have a common cause, and we're working on it together. It's a work in progress. Wow. And, and what do you think most Americans don't understand about uh, life on the ground politically in Israel? I mean, you've got both perspectives. You grew up here, fell in love with Israel, moved there, but you still got an American mentality. What is it that Americans, in your opinion, do not understand about what's happening on the ground in Israel? I, I will sum it up in, a, in an example that is very, very right now, a very right now kind of example, okay? We in Israel also, of course, have been trying to figure out this new government that was established, a very diverse government. Someone in the United States, and I understand, I do not criticize this question that this person is asking, but said to me, let me get this straight. You have someone like a Naftali Bennett who talks about the entire land of Israel belonging not only to the Jews, because even left-wingers believe that here, but in terms of politically now, that's what we have to follow. Together with a party like Meretz, who I mentioned earlier, objected to that UN Security Council resolution, even though they are a peace party, a left-wing party, merits a party as far left as that, that wants territorial compromise, that will have a Palestinian capital and part of Jerusalem, they're going to sit together with a Naftali Bennett who talks about the entire land of Israel? And my answer to people like that is the following. A, you're right. It's weird. It's unusual. But this is, I think, where we see the difference between how those of us who live here day to day view the situation and those who very much passionately care about us, but don't live here day to day. And, and so therefore there's no reason why they should you know, look at the other aspects of this issue, okay? Israel has been experiencing divisiveness, a very divided society in Israel, okay? Like you in the United States and like the, just about the entire world, if not the entire world, we've had COVID-19. 
We've had mass unemployment. We have socioeconomic issues. We have judicial reform that has to take place. I think people from the outside, because they don't live here, I mean, I, I again, don't blame them. They could do research. They could come for prolonged visits. You have to see Israel day to day. We are a very complete country like any other country. The Palestinian issue, for example, right now, as I'm sure you are aware, is not exactly a burning issue. Nothing is really happening right now. We have rockets from Gaza, obviously. But in terms of those differences between Naftali Bennett and a, and a far, if you will, even called far left-wing party merits, talking about a Palestinian state on territories Israel captured in the 1967 war in a war of def defense against Arab armies, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is there is so much that makes so many people here in the state of Israel literally cry out of joy when they see the diversity of this government, even with an Arab who, an Israeli Arab, first of all, there is an Arab who is a minister. Right. Wait, so, so hold on a second. So you're saying, David, that people in Israel can better appreciate and accept the kind of unity government that's been formed, even though it looks like, you know, to an American, you're saying it looks a little crazy because you got the right and the left sitting together. You're saying that that's something that is um, it's hard for, let's say, an American to to um, to appreciate, to accept, or just because they're not there. How, I just don't know how many Jews, wherever in the world, not just in the United States, mm -hmm. know about the day-to-day -day life in this country because they have enough of their own issues right. in their own lives of their own country, issues that we have to resolve. On the one hand, I once told the story, I can be at a red light waiting for pedestrians to cross the street. And I'll think about the fact, wow, that's a Russian Jew who crossed, that's an Ethiopian Jew who crossed the street, and say to myself, in a simple in a simple setting of crossing the street, we have that, in that gathering of the exile that felt more for, for millennia, people have been waiting to happen. That is the beauty, that is the miracle, that is the state of Israel as a Jewish state. At the same time, alongside that, we have to keep our feet planted on the ground and remember, we have economics, we have judicial reform, we have thing, we have unity, again, not agreeing with one another, we have to get along with one another, we have to be a society, okay? The Palestinian issue and Iran are crucial issues, but they're also external issues that have to be handled alongside the issues that a diverse government in Israel Hopefully, we don't know what's going to be. Well, that's what that's a very fragile government, but we hope that it can work. Right. I mean, I'll tell you, David, and and with this, maybe we'll bring us to a close. I really, really appreciate your thoughtful responses. I've always said this. I don't know how you feel, but I've always said that unless you live in Israel, you can't a fully appreciate the subtleties and the nuances. Just like if somebody didn't live in another country, and therefore we can have an opinion, but we can't really impose. Um, you know, as much as Israel is, is is a land for all Jews, whether you live there or not, it's still different if you don't live there and you're not serving in the army and you're not able to vote in the electorate. Um, we can have an opinion. Uh, we can lobby even on some level. But at the end of the day, it's up to the Israeli people, the people who are living there. And I think the new insight I'm getting from you is that it's not just a moral issue who has the right to sort of control the day to day if we're not living there. But the question as to whether or not um, we we fully understand, do we have the nuance if we're not there every day? You know, and I, I I've always felt strongly about that. I've always been very much opposed to American Jews trying to impose their perspective on 
what the government of Israel should do. It's, an, it's a democratically elected government. And if you want to be heard and you want to lobby, make Aliyah like you did <laughs> and serve in the army, and then you, you have at least as much as any person in Israel to be heard. Anyway, that's my feeling. You know, very well put. No, very, very well put. Listen, I got to tell you, just so you won't think not that you do, that I'm hypocritical. I am an American citizen. <laughs> I have the right to vote in U.S. elections, and I don't. I don't because because I feel that I don't see the day to day. I, you know, in this age of social media and immediacy and everything, I get to see everything going on in the United States, but I'm not there. I'm not there. Right. That's interesting. Well, I really appreciate your time here and, and your insights, especially on the issue of diversity and appreciating different perspectives and not shying away from having conversations with people with whom you disagree. I just think that's been a major – I wrote that in my first book, and I just put that in my second because I just think it's an issue young people are grappling with. I grew up um, – I, I had an internship years ago with Senator uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. was a liberal Democrat. And I saw how much respect he had for conservative Republicans and they for him. And it just, I'm not seeing that anymore, unfortunately. I'm not seeing it in U.S. politics. I'm not seeing it in Israel. I'm not, I'm not seeing it on the ground. And I want to do whatever I can to try to bring people together. And that's not by convincing another person that you're correct, but by inspiring respect for another person's point of view, even if you vehemently disagree with it. So I, I thank you for bringing that to our discussion um, and I congratulate you for for having that as part of your broadcasting and continuing in that in that tradition. I'm hoping that some of the younger next generation reporters are going to learn from you uh, and be able to continue to do that. Um, thank you so much, David. Thank you so much for for participating and and uh, you should just continue your amazing work. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.